Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Radiant Others, a Klezmer music podcast. My name's Dan Blacksburg, and if you're joining us here for the first time, that's amazing. Thank you for checking out this podcast. And if you've been with us the whole time, that's amazing. Thank you for listening to all the episodes I've been putting up. And if you're somewhere in between, awesome. Thank you for listening. Um, yeah, this is a Klezmer music podcast that I put out when I can, and it's a conversation between me and another musician who I know through the Klezmer world or whose work has somehow been important in that world or uh, whatever. Behind me, you're listening to today's musician, which is accordionist, ethnomusicologist, uh, an all-around amazing human being, Christina Crowder. That's Christina Crowder. I met Christina in 2007 on a bat mitzvah gig in Brooklyn with uh, Alicia Spiegels. I think you'll hear about this later. And recently, Christina and I actually have been making a lot of klezmer music together. We've been playing together here in Philadelphia. We recently were able to go to Montana for the Montana Folk Festival under Michael Winograd's uh, band leading. And I really enjoy Christina as a person. I really enjoy her as a player. She's great to play with. She's great to hang out with. And um, this conversation is really amazing to me because it goes to a lot of different places. And you might notice it's a little bit longer than some of the other episodes I've been putting up. But I just uh, I felt like everything that we covered was just so great. I wanted to share it with all of you. Christina lives in the New Haven area, and she plays around there, and she plays in New York and all over, but she spent a lot of her uh, adulthood in Europe, living in first in Budapest and then also in Romania, where she and her ex-husband did a lot of collecting of 78s and recording musicians who were still alive, who maybe had some relationship to Jewish music in Romania, so she has a really amazing story to tell, and I have to say, I learned a lot in this conversation. And uh, you know, talking that much about Eastern Europe and specifically what she was doing over there, things get pretty intense sometimes. So uh, when the emotions kind of overwhelm us, which you'll hear, bear with us. And uh, I hope that it feels as meaningful to you to learn all this stuff and to hear all of her thoughts about it as it was for me then and still is for me now. Uh, I was definitely getting pretty teary-eyed at some points, even just while putting this conversation together. So uh, I have one thing I want to actually make a little bit of an apology for, because I do a very musician-y thing a lot during this conversation, in which I say, yeah, or oh yeah, a lot of times in response to things Christina's talking about that I actually don't know anything about, but I sort of say yeah as a way to sound smart. And um, <laughs> I know some people have been asking me to provide more background or context for some of the things. So I'm going to try to do that with some links in the episode description. And if there's any questions, just please send me an email at danandanblacksburg.com or, you know, anywhere on social media. And I, I, I want this to work. So that's something that I'll try to do better on. Ask questions about things I'm not sure what they are. And I hope that we can all make that work for each other. Um, so Christina Crowder, she's awesome. You're going to hear a lot about her. And um, 
She's got a couple of her own albums out. You can find more about her at bivolitza.com, which is actually spelled B-I-V-O-L-I-T-A.com. And one thing that I want to mention is that some of the music you're going to hear today is actually from her own personal field recordings that she made during her time over in Eastern Europe. And she told me today, actually, that she is planning on putting out an album of those field recordings very, very soon, hopefully by the end of the year. And uh, I can tell you just from what I've heard so far and what you'll hear soon, that's pretty exciting. So stay tuned for that. And before we get started, I just want to let you know that in Philadelphia, there's a lot of really good klezmer music happening. So specifically, on October 28th, Susan Watts has a concert called Soul Songs that's happening at the Zellerbach Theater in Annenberg, which is on Penn's campus, and it's a big, beautiful theater, and she's got 11 of the greatest women klezmer musicians coming to play a program of all new music for the first time, and hopefully not for the last time. So that's October 28th. Uh, you can search Soul Songs, Women of Klezmer, or Inspiring Women of Klezmer, and you'll find that. So if you're anywhere in the area, many of you who are listening probably already have your tickets, but please get them and please make it for that. And I've got a lot of stuff coming up too, which, uh, yeah, we've gone on long enough already. Anyway, without further ado, here's my conversation with Christina Crowder. All right. Well, Christina Crowder. Welcome to my house in Philadelphia. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. It's really exciting. This is actually the first interview for this podcast that I've done at my own home. Right. Because no one, very few people live around here. And even the couple that I've done in Philly, I've still traveled to do them. So I'm super psyched on it. I think you're doing, you're having a true field recording experience by taking your podcast show on the road and going to the people that you want to interview. So totally, uh, you know, it's pretty good. Anyway, so, yeah, I mean, you were saying, like, you've been playing Klezmer for a long time, and you've got a kind of unusual path to this stuff compared to, like, me, where it was like, oh, I grew up in synagogue, and then someone was like, hey, how about this Klezmer? And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to do that for the rest of my life, and then the rest is history kind of thing. But for you, it was a lot different. For me, it was a lot different. I um, grew up in Portland, Oregon, and I went to college in Pacific Lutheran University in Tacoma, And while I was at PLU, I ended up taking a bunch of coursework in the Holocaust, basically, because uh, Christopher Browning, who is a very well-known, a rightly well-known Holocaust scholar, just happened to be at Pacific Lutheran University, had just happened to be at PLU at the time. So I was also studying anthropology and history, and my focus in anthropology always had been European peasant cultures. And so... It happened to be that I went to England for a junior year abroad in 1989. And we were there, you know, reading the newspaper, listening to the radio, and the Berlin Wall was coming down. And I I had planned to go on like an Easter holiday with a couple of girlfriends from school. And we we thought, oh, we should go to Berlin and, you know, see what's happening because it was so exciting. And in the end, we sort of chickened out and we couldn't get the, well, we, yeah, we couldn't, we just didn't get our act together to get the kinds of visas that we needed to get. And so we embarked on this train journey from, from, from England. We went over to Europe and had like a Eurail pass and we got to Vienna and it was very expensive. It's expensive 
today and it was expensive then, especially <laughs> when you're a student. Like it's yeah. always everything, you know, there's some of these European cities are just we just couldn't quite fathom how expensive it was. And I thought, oh, I let's go to Budapest because I had done some work with a girl uh, at my university. Uh, she was an exchange student and she needed a conversation partner. So my student job was to hang out with her at a coffee shop once a week and we just hang out and speak in English. And she said, if you're ever in Hungary, if you're ever in Budapest, you should come look me up. And so, you know, Sometimes you say those things, not expecting that people will take you up on it. But right. as a matter of fact, I was like, oh, well, like, let's go to Budapest. Vienna is horrible. I'm sure, you know, we, and so we rolled over to the Hungarian embassy. We got some visas and we took a train and we showed up in Budapest and we got picked up at the train station by uh, a lady who was like, you know, do you want a room? Do you want a place to stay? And we were like, uh, yeah, sure. And so she kind of just grabbed us and we went on the tram and we went over to this um, apartment building over by Nugati somewhere. And, you know, there was this room with three beds in it and there we were and we bunked down for the night and it cost, I don't know, it was like $10 a night or something. In the course of this journey from the train station over to this place, I some somehow I had acquired this uh, tourist guide that was like program in Ungarin. You know, it was like you know what to do in Budapest, and I um, was looking through it, and I saw that there was a folk dance that night um, somewhere in it. It turns out it was in Buda, and so I thought, oh, I like folk music. You know, I had been part of this like folk dance ensemble back at university. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I was, I had, you know, there's another story there, but I had been interested in Balkan music, Croatian music, and Scandinavian music. And I was starting to play those kinds of musics, you know, Irish music while I was in college. And so uh, I thought, okay, folk music, like Hungarian folk music, Eastern European folk music, this will be fun. So mm -hmm. I basically left the house, went out, got on a tram, figured I don't I don't even know how I did this, but I figured out how to get on a tram to go over to this place. I must have asked the lady at the house like how to get there. And so she told me how to get the ticket to punch on the train and then I went out to Buddha somewhere and I walked in and there were um two circles, one for the guys and one for the girls and they were doing like the teaching session. So not knowing what else to do, I just went in and I joined the girls' circle. And they were showing how to do chardash, basically. And there was a band. There was a live band playing for this practice session. So I was like, I don't know. I just oh, was captivated so and in right from this very first moment. Mm -hmm. And I and so it goes on. And eventually more people come and more people come. And, and, then, and then it transitions from the teaching session into the dance session. And I was completely, I was like enraptured by this experience because unlike going to folk dances and international folk dance events in the States at the time, there all of the people there were young people. They were like, they were like my age and younger. And I was like kind of in my early 20s at the time. So, or mid 20s. And, you know, at the time going to the international folk session, I was always the youngest person. In the yeah, room, right. You know, right. And, 
so and and the music was amazing and it i don't know if it was mujikash i can't even i wouldn't be able to i wouldn't have remembered who it was that was playing but it was a band that probably we know of today mm. and i was so excited and of course i didn't speak a word of hungarian and i was just sort of like going with the flow nodding and smiling and stuff as you do and um but then i heard english at some point and this guy was there and i was like <gasps> I, i like ran over to him i was like oh my god what is this what is happening like i'm so excited i was like blah 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 And he's like, you know, calm down. Just, it's going to be okay. Like, you should talk to Bob. I'm like, who's Bob? <laughs> And he's like, oh, he'll be here later. You know, he'll... That sounds he, like Bob. <laughs> it sounds like Bob. <laughs> so he shows up. He's like, he'll be here around 10 probably. So, so, and I was like, well, how will I know who he is? He's like, you'll know who he is. <laughs> also sounds like also Bob. Also sounds like Bob. Yeah. So, of course, and then, and, and, and of course he did show up and he sort of, you know, and I was like, you know, a million questions, like anthropologist's brain is like going a million miles an hour. And he, you know, kind of just explained what what was happening and he said on you know today's tuesday night on thursday night you should go here because there's the seiki tansas and on wednesday night you should go to marzibaniter because there's the moldvai tansas and he kind of just gave me this little program and he also basically uh, you know he kind of just talked me through hanging out and he and he actually spent you know we spent you know he was very generous with his time and like we hung out a bunch You know, he'd go to meet for coffee. I, you know, I ended up going out to meet his cousin. He took like on a little field trip, like for Easter, we went out to visit his cousin in Vesprem or something like that. And I basically just stayed. My two other girlfriends decided, you know, it was nice to be in Budapest, but they had not had this rapturous experience. And so like one of them went down to Croatia and the other one went up to go hang out in Scandinavia. And I ended up staying for three weeks. Wow. And until I had to get on a train to go back to England and get back into school. And and that whole time I was going to a Tansas every night. I was like walking around the city and just kind of reveling in the fact that it was after the revolutions, but before the elections. Mm-hmm. So everybody was really in a great mood. Yeah, right. That's really great. <laughs> And you could go on a Saturday night. I remember being at Saturday night at um, the big Tansas on Saturday night and just seeing a room filled with 300 people from little kids to old people and everybody was dancing. And there was a bar in the back. People were hanging out and there was a live band up on the stage. And that scene just captured me of in the sense of like, this This is a living, this is a truly living folkloric tradition that it's not just some some anthropological past but it is living today in as a way that you know this uh, group of folks had managed to preserve this very special part of their culture through all of the trials and tribulations of the communist period um, it's funny that almost 20 years later when I went to Budapest as like a young guy and I stayed for a couple days and Sue Foy took me to one of these things. I had a really similar experience, obviously coming from a different place, but just the fact of watching something that felt at least, you know, it was Eastern European folk dance or folk music, which is something that I was interested in. And, you know, I was playing Klezmer, but just to see the level of like youth engagement and just the massive amount of people who were at one of these things, I think it was a Tuesday 
that was just mind blowing. And I thought, like, this is what it's supposed to like. This is it's just like you said. This is when it's living, when it's really, really healthy and living. This is what it looks like. Yeah, when you have a twenty-year-old person or a twenty-four-year-old person saying, "What am I going to do on Tuesday night?" and their answer is, "I'm going to go to the folk dance." Yeah. like then you know that you have something. <laughs> totally, totally. <laughs> and 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 even today, I think like Marzipanitere Tanzas, the one and the one, the the, the Moldvai Tanzas, like that's actually. You know, it's it really is became almost I you know, I, I don't know exactly, but it almost became like where the young people would go to like kind of party, like they would go to get drunk and hang out and dance. Like it's you know not instead of going to like the club, and maybe they would go to like the club later, but they would that was their stop, mm. you know, earlier in the evening. But anyway, I I had this great experience three weeks there. I went back to England, finished the year there, went back to the United States, graduated. I went and lived in Seattle for a couple of years. I continued to do sort of international folk dancey things. I studied uh, Bulgarian accordion for a couple of years with Eric Butterworth, who was one of the uh, people, one of the major players on the West Coast of Bulgarian accordion. So he gave me a few lessons and sort of basic technique on the accordion uh, in a Bulgarian style. And that that those few lessons really set me up to learn how to play um, Eastern European and accordion much later. It, did, it took me many years, actually, to really take those lessons on board, but they were like an absolutely invaluable part of like my progression as a musician on the accordion because it really showed me that accordion te- technique is a very different from piano technique. But in, in 1993, uh, for some reason, and I actually, I wouldn't even be able to tell you why, I decided, my, well, my parents were giving me some pressure, gentle pressure about, well, when are you going to go to graduate school? And I didn't really have an answer, but I thought, well, if I'm going to go get a PhD in anthropology, I need to, and I'm going to go study Eastern Europe, I should really go back to Hungary for a while and see if that three-week you know, experience is what it's actually like, or was that just this unique moment that has passed and maybe actually I wouldn't want to live there maybe I don't really want to get too involved so but I thought well I'll go I'll go um check it out for a couple of months I'll go go over there and hang out so in November I think it's November 1993 I somehow packed up my bags got a plane ticket and showed up in Budapest and I hadn't been in touch with Bob um who we should mention is Bob Cohen oh yeah Bob Cohen of course yeah sorry the band's (laughs) right and you know, somebody in the Klezmer scene. Right. So I hadn't been in touch with him because actually back in those days in 1993, there really wasn't an internet. And right. I might have had a phone number, but I was too much of a cheapskate to like risk <laughs> making a phone call. <laughs> you know, and and I just sort of assumed that he was there. And I, and I think at a certain point, I also realized that even if he wasn't, by some miracle, that he wasn't, didn't happen to be around, that I would go check it out anyway. But I kind of, and then, then, um, one of the Hungarian bands came through town and, and I asked, I asked the primash, you know, is Bob Cohen around? He's like, yes, 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 he's there. So I showed up and, you know, basically stayed in a youth hostel for a while. And then I ended up finding out, you know, went to Tansas. And of course, and then I found out that Bob was working at uh, Budapest Week. So I went and I dropped down to the office and, 
just sort of looking for him and then met all the folks there. Tom Popper was probably one of the very first yeah. people that I met and he had just recently broken his leg. So he was on crutches and you know, it all went from there. Bob was in fact in Budapest. He was writing for Budapest week and he was once again, very kind, very generous with his time. And we were hanging out and then, and then it happened to be that right at that moment, he had been playing with a Budapest Klezmer band and he had decided that he wanted to do his own project. And the basic line was, you know, why would I be living in Hungary and playing in a Jewish band? You know, I want to play Jewish music, but why am I playing in a band that's playing American klezmer music, which is more or less seemed to be what the Budapester klezmer band was playing at the time. They were Mm -hmm. like doing the KCB or the American orchestras. Very typical. Right. And so he's like, well, we have a Hungarian Jewish tradition, so I want to play that. Yeah. And he had been studying deeply, you know, Hungarian fiddle tradition and all of these things. So I was there. I had an accordion with me because, of course, I had an accordion with me. And he's like, hey, do you want to playing a band and I said sure and I said what kind of music is it and he said Jewish music klezmer music and I was like what's that uh-huh <laughs> and it really was and I because I knew nothing I mean I had been studying Jewish history European Jewish history the holocaust but I had no I didn't have a connection to Yiddish music or klezmer music or anything like that because I'm I'm not Jewish right. and I'm from the west coast so I'm you know quite didn't grow up in a con- you know I had Jewish friends but it was not a it wasn't very close to that as a culture Yeah and I think those ties hadn't been made as strongly as they are now you know I've been having this funny experience where people are telling me that they grew up listening to klezmer music and like I think that that's actually a little bit newer than they realize. I think so, too. But while I'm talking, I should also say that I just remembered when I first met you and why that Budapest story that I just said happened, which was because we played a bat mitzvah in deep Brooklyn with Alicia Siegels in early 2007. Right. And it was the first time I met you, and you gave me a ride back to Winograd's house, Michael Winograd's house where I was staying, and... I said, oh, I'm going to Hungary. And you said, you should stay with my friend Tom Popper, which I did. And then, so actually, that <laughs> I forgot that that story that relates so strongly to your story was actually directly caused by you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. So this well, is great. It's a small world at a certain it point. Is. It still is a small world there. Yeah. And so, so you know, Bob basically had some cassette tapes. He had some, he had some material. He had ideas of things that he wanted to do. There were some... Hungaraton uh, albums that had, you know, like the Satmar Jewish tunes. There was um, some other stuff, and you know, he basically he created he created a repertoire that he wanted to do, and you know, we rehearsed it, and and that. So I was, you know, part of uh, Dinai Capella, like kind of right from the very beginning. Um, I still have that aesthetic. Somehow, even after all of these years of having studied klezmer music and played klezmer music, that somehow my heart is still in that original principle that the Nyakapelia was founded on, you know, that Bob articulated, which is we wanted to sound like what you would have heard at a Jewish wedding in a village or a small town 
in Hungary or maybe in Transylvania in 1920. Yeah, that was the seed that was planted in you. That was the seed. And so all of the work that came later was sort of trying to chase down, well, what would that have sounded like, mm. you know, in various places? So, you know, the Nyakapelia, I mean, it was it was a great, it's a great band. It was a lot of fun playing all of those tunes, learning all of that music. We toured, you know, we got to, I got to go to almost all of different countries all around Europe, basically everywhere except for Scandinavia and Spain uh, with that band on various Amazing. festivals. I mean, we never made any money, but we had a great time and we yeah, got to do lots of cool but stuff. But it was so easy to tour. Well, mm, no. not so easy, but, 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 you know, you, but, but living in Budapest is easy. No, so you, the, the financial requirements were not that Right. So when you huge. say we made no money, it means you weren't saving anything, but you weren't going hungry or like, you could pay your bills. I wasn't, I mean, I always had work. I always had a job. I oh, mean, gotcha. I was doing stuff. I was freelancing, but I was freelancing. I mean, I mean, I think when I first, when I first moved there, like, I mean, a pack of cigarettes was like 17 cents and a beer was the same. Mm -hmm. I mean, so I had, I think I came with like $1,500 in my pocket. I had saved up from my work in Seattle. And I think that that money lasted me for a year. You, you didn't have it. You weren't, you didn't go there planning on moving there. No. And then you just ended up staying. I just stayed because. How about that? I was having. I mean, it was so it was so cheap to live there. And yeah, I think this is like what's hard to understand from a person of my age or younger is how little money. It wasn't that anybody made any money. That seems to be what I'm learning. But that you just didn't need to make any money. You didn't need to make all that much, and it really was at that point in Hungary it was super cheap. And and I was. You know, I, I remember telling my dad at one point, I was like, you know, why would I come back to the United States to pay money to go to graduate school to study Hungary when I can be in Hungary, like studying the culture, learning the language, I mean, uh, studying the music, playing the music, performing the music, doing all of these things, you know, I can just be here. Yeah. You know, and, and, and it's true, it's different than having a more formal education, but at the same time, I was able to find a way to be there. And now it's true, I never really dove into playing Hungarian music. And part of that was because, well, there, I, there, I've always, there's like three reasons. One, I'm an American. That was always a little bit suspect. Even then, it's more so now, but it, even even in the beginning, there was strains of that sort of more of a nationalist sort of like vibe within the musical culture, much, much less, but it was a little bit there. But the, the, but that was compounded by the fact that I was a woman and that American woman, okay, that's a thing. But the most important and the third nail, essential nail in the coffin was that I played accordion. And you know, that was like just not, the people were just not interested in that at all, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because accordion was like this interloper instrument. And so, you know, I was like, I don't, you know, that's fine. I don't really need to work so hard to break into a scene that really doesn't want me. And that's part of what made studying Jewish music so interesting and so fascinating. I mean, part of it was that I was already in love with the music. Once I started hearing these tapes and hearing the cassettes and like, kind of mapping the Jewish aesthetic and the klezmer aesthetic into this general soundscape of the Hungarian um, the Hungarian musical aesthetic of primash brach bass mm -hmm. you know you're mapping these tunes into that sort of sound universe like 
I was I was kind of I was already captured. So I was already heading towards the Jewish music as being perhaps ultimately more interesting to me. It was certainly more engaging for me. Um and so that goes on, you know, the band, we put out these, you know, a couple of albums, that was great. Um, at a certain point, I had a job, I got a job at CEU. I was the program coordinator for the program on gender and culture. What was this? This is the, so um, I'll backtrack for just a minute. My, I, I worked freelance for a couple of years. I did, I wrote for Budapest Week, I wrote for the tourist magazines, I wrote I worked, I did radio, a little bit of radio for this program called Central Europe Today, you know, and I would like run out. I remember going out to like the Jolnai porcelain factory and doing a radio interview with the director there, half in English and half in Hungarian, which I don't even remember how I learned that enough. I, I learned Hungarian very quickly, <laughs> mostly because I was in full immersion mode. Yeah, it's pretty intense. There. Yeah, it's pretty intense. So, but anyway, and then eventually I got like a job. I got in 96... I started working at the Central European University, and uh, my roommate, Claude, uh, was good friends with a woman named Mindy Roseman, who, oddly enough, is now at Yale. Oh. <laughs> we literally, <laughs> we're now neighbors again, which is kind of amazing. But she, they, they were starting this, they had started a project on gender and culture at the behest of the wife of the president at the time, Nancy Steppen. And now they were going from being a project to being a program and they needed a program coordinator, somebody to just be like the admin person who had Hungarian enough to speak and hang out with the staff at the university, but had good writing skills in English and good English verbal skills, of course. And so I got that job and I worked there for three years as the program grew and developed. Um, and it was phenomenal. I mean, that's a whole nother podcast or a whole nother story but it was a great job but at a after a while i was like wait a minute i'm you know i'm working 10 hours a day at this great job but actually what i really want to be doing is more research more music and so i started um well and also in the meantime i had met this guy i we the nikapelia went to cluj we went to kolosvar to play for an opening of a cultural center that was in uh, a former synagogue. And we'd been invited to be part of the opening ceremonies there. And we went, uh, you know, we got, we hopped in Geza's car and we drove down to Cluj and um, rolled into the gig and just met this. And so there we are, we're hanging out and this guy comes up to us and he's like, hi, you know, mm -hmm. I'm an American. <laughs> like, yeah. we're like, you're Americans. Like, what are you doing here? And we're like, what are you doing here? And <laughs> as you do, because you're like, you know, oh, it's, yeah, it's like, obviously you do, right? <laughs> of course, yeah. I mean, one time I was in Romania and it was going, heading back to Budapest and I was on a train station by myself. And I, as soon as I heard a word of English, it was like a magnet. You know, you're just like something <laughs> like, you know. hey, what are you doing here? And like, yeah. hey, hi, how, what's up? So, so that sort of happened. And so we started talking and chatting and he's there and he turns out he's a uh, John Demetric and he was uh, volunteering at a, he was basically, it's a volunteer program. He was teaching English at a high school in Koloshvar uh, for a year. And he came out to this concert. And so we um, hung out. He stayed for the show. I think we went out for drinks afterwards. And eventually we sort of struck up, you know, a long distance relationship. I can't remember actually if, on that trip or another trip, we ended up taking like 
I think we must have. I think we must have gone back to Cluj and we played another gig, and then the next day we stayed up like all night, like hanging out. And then the next day we went up to um, we went out to a village to go like hang out with gays and meet some musicians and stuff. So that kind of cemented that relationship. And then we started traveling back and forth. We, you know, internet had been invented somehow and I had an email address and he could go to a cyber cafe and we would like exchange letters and stuff back and forth. And then on the strength of that sort of now having uh, somebody that I was sort of engaged with and, and working with and who was very rapidly learning Romanian, I felt like I had the ability to look for um, some kind of a grant opportunity to go do actual field research in Romania. Mm. And so having met John, we basically um, sat in his at his parents' beach house in Rhode Island and wrote out our the basics of our Fulbright proposals. You know, there were at the time, there was a couple of people who were in Budapest or around Budapest who had had Fulbright grants. And they basically gave you the spiel, like, you know, look, you know, if you're here, you know, and you want to go do some research, like, this is a great grant to try to get. Um, Pearl Gluck was in town. She had been working on her project for a while. So she kind of, like, helped talk me through, like, how you apply for the grant, you know, the kinds of things that you needed to say, how you needed to present yourself. And so that was a great, it was great advice to get from all of those folks and 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 basically i just a lot of people at the time were saying oh all of the old people are gone all of the the music is it's too late it's too late and i think somehow john and i kind of egged each other on to the to to sort of say well maybe it's true maybe it is too late maybe all of the old folks who have knowledge of Jewish music from before the Holocaust or who played for and with the Jews who came back, maybe they are all gone. But I want to make sure. Yeah. I so, wanted I want to make sure. And I know that we can like that's what we're gonna do. Yeah. So we did. Right. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, we, we, we were very fortunate. John applied. My, my project was, you know, the rise and fall of the accordion in, in Romania as a folk instrument. You mm -hmm. know, I didn't want to write a grant that was explicitly about Jewish music because I wasn't sure whether or not there would be an issue of getting that approved in, on the Romanian side. I didn't know that there would be a problem, but I didn't know that there wouldn't be a problem. Right. 
John wrote a grant about archival work and um, trying to get a sense of what the holdings were in all the various folklore museums all around Romania. He had done volunteer work at the Folklife Center in um, in Washington, D.C. when he was going to school. So he had this sort of folkloric collector's background. So that's where he wrote his, that's the, the strength on which he wrote his grant. Um, but the, but the, big, the big program was that we were going to go out and we were going to try to find, you know, old musicians. Mm-hmm. And you both got? We both got grants. That's so great. We had a pact. You know, yeah, if one right, of us yeah. gets the grant, you know, the other gets the grant. But in the end of the day, we both got grants. So off we, you know, in the fall of 99, we packed up all of our, you know, we packed, I packed up all my stuff out of my apartment and I, we had bought Heiko Lehmann's, uh, Nina Lehmann had helped us buy a car in Germany. Mm-hmm. This little awesome little Opel <laughs> Cadet. And, you know, I, we rolled back to Budapest. I picked up all my stuff. We got, got, got in the car, drove to you know, drove down, we got an apartment in Cluj and set up shop. It was great. Wow. And this wasn't so long ago. Like, this wasn't in the 80s. This was like 2000. This is 1990, 1999. One of the things that helped us get started is that Ruth Gruber, uh, you know, I had met her, um, you know, obviously in Budapest, and we had actually stayed with her. The Nykapelia had stayed at her parents' house in Italy when we were on tour, you know. And so we, you know, met her parents and we'd hung out. And she... Her brother, Sam, was overseeing a project to document Jewish places all around the world. But at the time, they were working on a cemetery documentation program. And they he had contacts in Romania, but she said that they were having a little bit of trouble getting the Romanians to kind of get started with the project. And so she said, why don't you go out, you know, would you be interested in going out and doing the cemetery project for Marmorish County. And we were like, of course. And the the deal was basically they would cover kind of travel and lodging, and then it was $25 per cemetery that you would go out. You have, you know, you'd locate the cemetery, and then you would go out and you would um, meet the caretaker if there was one, uh, identify whether or not there was a caretaker, meet the caretaker, go look at the site, take a bunch of photographs, write up a whole survey about what was there and what the conditions were and all this stuff. And so we basically set out to document Maramoresh County. And we had a list of sites from the Jewish Federation. And we eventually found, I think, a hundred and I think 125 or 130 cemeteries wow. in Maramoresh County. How big of an area are we talking about? And it's hard to say. It's probably is it the size of the unit of one Rhode Island? It might be. It might be one Rhode Island. Okay. In size, I'm not That's, really sure. It might be a little bit smaller. Yeah. But it's pretty big. It's pretty big. It's pretty big county. But we would go out on these like two week runs. We'd go out and we'd um, we just pick a part of the map, and we would then just go to every single village in that section. We'd have a home base, stay with somebody, a little ponzio somewhere, and then we would get up. 7.30, 8 in the morning, we would go down to the cafe. We would have terrible Mendes Cafe and smoke a bunch of cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> and then we would hit the road, and we would kind of just go out all day long, and we'd go into every village, and we had sort of like this three-stop process where you would we stop at the beginning of the village, whatever, you know, you roll into town, you're kind of in 
this one side of the village, you'd stop, you'd find an old person saying, hi, we're looking for a Jewish cemetery. And by the way, do you have any old musicians? <laughs> and, you know, no, okay, we go to the center of town, stop in the center of town, find an old person or a couple of old people, ask the same question, do you have any Jewish cemeteries? Do you have any old musicians? And we struck out there, we go down to the, you know, on the way out of town and do the same thing. And, and then, you know, sometimes, you know, we, we get a hit on somebody would say, oh, yeah, you know, and then, the, you know, up the hill, take a left, go down to wherever and so and so or, or you know, Mr. Kovach, he lives over so and so and then we'd end up, you know, and then we go from there, we find the cemetery document the cemetery. And then if we had a musician, I mean, the, the great part about working with older musicians is usually they're at, they're at home, or if they're not at home, they're close to home, you know, so when then we would just sat down and do an interview right then and there if we could do or we'd arrange to come back the next day to talk to somebody you know so that was it that's kind of the process wow <laughs> i have so many thoughts about what it felt like to do that when you were doing it uh i mean it seems to me the first thing is that it's never too late in a way you know even Someone like, there are guys in their 60s who I've met in Moldova who played Jewish music or were at least playing music with their parents or right. grandparents who played Jewish music. And and that's not even with, you know, deep traveling. Right. You know, it's amazing that you can go out and find that stuff. And even today, in 2018, when you think, oh, it's definitely too late, it's still not really... And this was even twenty, almost twenty years ago. It wasn't too late. It was there was a lot of stuff going on, and there was a lot of opportunities to meet people. I'm assuming, and I know you've collected a lot of music. We didn't. We didn't collect. We didn't end up. I mean, we we found a lot of cemeteries. We found like 130 okay. cemeteries. Yeah. We did, and that was surprising. We did find a lot more. You know, like that. We 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 had our list, and we went off our list. But we we thought like, you know. There were. It, it turned out that there were cemeteries in places that had not been visited, that nobody that nobody knew about. And no, we went to one cemetery. We found a place in a little village out in western Marmorish County where the family that we met had their neighbors had a small plot. You know, their Jewish neighbors had a small plot. I think it was about six, six or eight headstones. And when they, when the Hungarians came to take them away, you know, he asked his neighbor to look after. The, the stones oh, that's deep. and he told us that he did and when the government came to collectivize the property after the war um he said no 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 this this area this little spot that's part of my private garden and i and you know I, I will take care of it and this has you know this is part of my little plot that's part of our family plot where we can grow some vegetables and he protected it wow. and but nobody had come since then uh, wow yeah what was it like being I mean, this sounds a little crass but like what was it like being a non-jewish person do i mean what what kind of things were you confronting with yourself looking at this stuff well it's um i mean i think that's what got us up in the morning yeah. is like if you've been 
given the responsibility or the asked to participate participate in the in the documentation of this uh, if you've been asked to participate in the documentation of something this important yeah then you just you know you you go to make sure that you sorry no it's fine thank you Okay, I'm ready. Yep. Oh, I was going to get you. <laughs> Just a napkin, but we've got. Thanks. So when you when you've been asked to participate in a project like that, you want to just go out and make sure that you you know, if there's something to be found, you want to make sure that you that you are there to find it. Mm. You know, and that means that, okay, you know, you know that the information can be unreliable. We know, you know, history is a very complicated thing. Records are lost. Things are forgotten. And when you have, you know, the people for whom this was their, you know, their families and their people, they're gone. You want to be part of the, the process that can bring that back. You want to be part of the process that brings that back to be visible. Yeah. No, that's it. Such important work. Uh, thank you, Christina. I'm glad that you got to do that. I didn't know. So. I mean, yeah, do you want um, to take a minute? Uh, yeah, just one little. But but like, let's let it, let it roll just a sec. Let me just sure. take a sec. But. You know, so that that moment of meeting that family and talking to them, it's a little tiny, tiny moment that isn't really it's not it's not in a documentary, it's not um it's not a, a thing that you put in the history books as a great momentous thing, but it just having been there and being able to see those people and say thank you. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I didn't know we were going there today. <laughs> <laughs> So then, then uh, you know, finding the musicians, like with the musicians we had, you know, we had a guide of this list of 
cemeteries from the Federation, but we were going to go to every village. I mean, the only village that we didn't visit in modern Moresh County, did, like they didn't have a road anymore because it had been washed out in a flood, you know. But yeah. we went to every single other village, and I think we we you know we covered the territory. We wanted to make sure we covered the the ground and went to every single place and asked the questions. With the musicians, we had a guidepost, and that is that John had gone down, this is before before I arrived in Romania, and before we moved into Cluj, he had gone down to the archive in Bucharest, and he had done a little pre-research, and he has he had a way, he has a way with archives somehow. He has like <laughs> archive juju. And he basically, he went in, and they, they all the catalogs were all just on paper, and he went and he started looking through the catalogs, and he found this piece of Jewish material from like 1969 or 1970. Um, and basically what had happened, what seemed to have happened is that one of the folklorists, I think it's Chernia, went up to Maramuresh and she kind of like grabbed all of the good musicians. She grabbed a bunch of the really good musicians from Maramuresh and she brought them down to Bucharest. And by looking at the catalogs, what it looks like happened, or, you know, it's kind of a joke, but it's like she locked them in a room and made them play everything, hmm. everything they knew, <laughs> like everything. There's like pages and pages and pages and pages in the catalog, you know, like all these tunes, all the stuff from this village, from that village, this tune, that tune, everything. And at the very end, when she's got, it's like, do you have anything else? You know, like there's some waltzes and mazurkas. And it's like, do you have anything else? And there's 24 minutes of Jewish music. Whoa. Yeah. And, and John was able to acquire this from the archive. They gave it to him on a cassette tape. And he had the names of the players and we call it's called we we know it as like the Vad recording. And there is a town in Marmorsh called Vadu Vaduize. We were like, okay, so here's our job. We're gonna go out and we're gonna find who made this recording, right? And it was recently enough that it was you could expect some of those people to be around. Well, if it was recorded in 1970, right, okay, 20 yeah. years later, mm -hmm. yeah. It's conceivable that some of those people were still alive. So we went off on this grand journey to try to figure out who it was. And so uh, and so it was like uh, Kovac Georg and Kovac George, another Kovac. There's like a bunch of Kovaches. And then there's a guy named Dreiman. We're like, Dreiman, that sounds Jewish. Like, yeah, let's right. find that guy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And it, it, so we went on along. So we, we, you know, we went to like Vaduize and we went to like the folklore center. You know, they have like the culture, Casa de Cultura there. He's asking around. We didn't find anything. We sort of struck out. But eventually we sort of pieced together that what it was is that the primash from western uh, side of Maramuresh, Kovac Chata, uh, who maybe he is from Baduise. I'd have, have to look at a map. But anyway, but and Bob, Kovac Chata is the person that Maramuresh worked with. Bob had been to visit him and and as part of the field work that went into the Muzikash album of the of gotcha. the of the of the Jewish uh, music of of, of Maramuresh, mm -hmm. Draiman was was so there's singing on the Vad tape. So we thought, oh, Draiman must be the singer, right? Because it's in Yiddish, right? Mm -hmm. No, no, no. It turns out that Draiman was like Kovac Chata's um, drinking buddy who played the drum. <laughs> Because we talked oh, to that guy, he can play drums. <laughs> That's right. Like him. he's there. Like right, fine. We talked to. I think we talked to Chata's widow, who told us that Kovach Chata passed away at that time. But so, and then it turned out that the other primash 
was a guy from Borsch who played and whose name is Kovac Stingau. And so like lefty, mm-hmm. right? And he was he was probably the main the main primash on that one, the guy who actually um was the the main player on that on that album or on that that set of tracks. And we went up there and we actually found his like nephews. And it was though the recording is a little kooky, but it's not it's not particularly sort of exciting as a musical document but what was cool cuz like he played saxophone like the 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 younger one played saxophone and it was like saxophone and and like clape um so sort of musicologically it was not so interesting but it was great <laughs> because when once we tracked him down we got him into a you know we had it was like at a bar or something that he was sort of like playing and like his relatives were there and they were like mimicking how to dance jewish and wow. they were like lip syncing the words to the tunes. Like the 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 Yiddish of the tunes had gotten even more um, you know, like phonetic. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, yeah. it was the idea of the Yiddish. It wasn't sort of recognizable Yiddish words, yeah. but yeah, it was that was fun. Wow. You know, there's such a an idea that it's gone. And this is going back to that thing I was right. saying a little bit about it's never too late, kind of. Right. You know, people talk about the Holocaust, and they're like, it was annihilated. It was this. I mean, I've said this recently on talks and stuff. And I think it's just so wrong. And what's really remarkable about it to me is how subtly wrong it is. You know, yeah, there might not have been somebody who could speak the words and tell you exactly what they meant or be a scholar on it. But here are people who are phonetically remembering Yiddish songs, you know, years and years after this stuff was right. like regularly available, have probably no relationship, like they, whatever relationship they have to that is couldn't be more different than this idea of like, oh, the Jews of the old world, you know, it's like, it's just like, the, it, and, it's, and it's so local. And, it's you know, much closer. It's much more local. It's much because it's it was right there. And that sort of going back to the cemetery piece of it, almost it it, it was it, it is I'm sure a very different dynamic for 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 John and I to come and be non-Jews yeah. in that context, because you know I mean we would be talking to people. I mean people told us stories about. You know, being a young boy, like their neighbors were taken away and they put them in a uh, somewhere in Seaget, there was like a yard or something or like a, somebody's garden. They had people were gathered there. They had to camp out and and they held them there before they took them away on the trains. Yeah. And that the this guy, this like I can't remember, like his brother or like somebody's brother, like went and they they gave them some food and they swam across the river to give food to their to their friends you know and people would tell us stories about you know being kids and like you know the kids from the one family coming over and eating with them and like eating bacon and you know or all these very <laughs> like very childish kid stories about but that showed that the very close neighborly relations that these families had with each other because Marmush, the settlement pattern was different from a lot of other places, some places in that there were, I mean, the reason we found so many cemeteries is that there were uh, Jewish families and maybe several of them, 
many of them in lots of the villages. And they maybe were kind of merchants, but maybe they were also farmers. I mean, they, they it was allowed for them to be farmers in those areas. And so there was a it wasn't just like there was larger communities only in Siget and only in Borsha, the bigger towns. They were kind of integrated into the communities on all the little villages, which right. is why there were so many little cemeteries. And it's not Fiddler on the Roof where you have the us versus them kind of set up. There probably was some of that. Sure. But that's not the story. That's not the story that, that, that the people that we were talking to and the people who were been caretakers for the cemeteries. I mean, we weren't. You know, you there's the things that you you know you're kind of just talking and you're chatting and then you stand together. And you don't really know exactly what to say because what can you say? But you could tell that there were very deep feelings there. Yeah. The only time, so we only of all those 130 cemeteries, there was only two cases where we found a real like what I would call a problem. Pro- a problem. But all of the rest of the cemeteries. You know, we didn't see graffiti on the stones. We didn't see things. We just, you know, saw people very quietly kind of going about their their day and their lives, you know, with this big hole in the middle of them that they maybe didn't think about all the time. But then you're there and... Yeah. And then you're there. It meant something. Yeah. <sighs> but um, so we didn't, we didn't find, you know, it's true it wasn't too late. Our, our sort of most, uh, we did find a really wonderful musician called uh, Kovac Georg Ayuane, uh, uh, who was in Yod, and he played us some really cool stuff. You know, it's mm-hmm. a really nice informant. Um, <laughs> you really, you guys really bit off a lot more than you thought you were going to with this whole full bite trip. Right. Well, we just, you know, it was, it was, I think nobody, nobody had talked to him. He hadn't been recorded before. Yeah. He was like the one person who we really knew hadn't been recorded mm-hmm. up until that point. So, um, but then, you know, so we did a bunch of, we did all the work in Modern Moorish and we found some, we have some great recordings we had and, you know, a really nice time. We did the cemetery work and then we sort of branched out. We started going over into Moldova, you know, being based in Cluj, we went over to Moldova. We found some more great musicians, some really interesting stuff. We didn't find anything that's sort of like earth shattering mm-hmm. in the sense of being like, oh my God, you know, this is like earth shattering, amazing music that, you know, would change the face of the research of klezmer music but but we did find a lot of really interesting stuff i mean john you know in addition to going out and going to the villages we would um also go into the towns and whenever there was an uh uh like a music school or a library or any kind of a place like either like in suchava or botoshan or any of these sort of larger towns we would go to those institutions and we would look through their catalogs and if they had a f- folklore collections like you know Moldav- you know 100 and 500 moldavian tunes you know like 125 moldavian jokes you know like i have, <laughs> I, have a, I have a i call them my joke books my joke books yeah, right. you know i have the 800 <laughs> jokes i have 500 jokes um <laughs> And we would, I would basically, we would basically like hand over my passport and say like, I'm going to give you my passport. Can I take this book out and take it to the local copy shop? And then we would have, um, you know, you couldn't do the copying yourself, but you'd leave the book with the lady and she would, and we'd be like, we want page 110 to 400. And then we just pay for the photocopies and then take the books back. Mm -hmm. And so we just hoovered up this stuff. John had put out. Uh, he was putting ads in newspapers in various uh, parts of the country, like looking for 78s. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So 
he was quietly amassing a really large collection of of Romanian 78s. Lots of brass bands. Yeah. Lots of um, kind of uh, laudar music. But he also ended up with a really cool collection of stuff that's um, these... There's a couple of coupletists. So these are people who were like kind of the light musical theater uh, of the early 20th century Bucharest cafe scene. Hmm. They would sing like uh, topical kind of political funny songs like, you know, Shitsa in Parliament. You know, it's like a skit about the parliament. You know, this is how these politicians work. You know, this one's sleeping with that one. And this one's like, you know, things that you would might, if you were going out for a Saturday night review, you know, you would see this as part of almost, it's not vaudeville exactly, but like a review show. You know, you have a singer, you have somebody play music, you have somebody do some dancing, whatever. I imagine that that's what it was like. And then he had, we have a couple of these phenomenal uh, accordion duets. They're male and wife, often uh, male and wife couple, both playing accordions and singers. Mm -hmm. And, they're not Jewish, I don't think, but I think they're somehow Jewish adjacent. Okay. This music is. Yeah. And uh, there's another person, Bujianu, who is also like these kind of kooky, um, it's like clarinet and accordion material. Uh, that's also really interesting. And then a bunch of solo accordion players. And there's also um, these sort of vocalists who are like, they're all trained in Italy. Hmm. as kind of like a light an opera like there's an operatic sort of vibe to the music the way that they're singing but their their topics of their songs are their uh romanian like folk songs or their okay. romanian f- kind of doina oltului you know mm-hmm. like uh but the 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 musical style the singing style is very trained it's very like operatic so we had this access so john by by looking around and really digging into this music he gave us this background he gave me this background of like understanding a part of romanian musical culture that didn't really survive the second world war as far as i can tell uh-huh yeah because i think things really changed after the world the war and then also in under communism right there is a an effort to take i'm speculating but here here goes uh i think that this sort of bourgeois uh, cafe right. music, yeah, right. That makes total sense. Gets is subsumed into this national folkloric style. Sure. And then you have these, and unfortunately, like it becomes very orchestrated and regimented, and you know, it's all kind of cleaned up for this presentation that is now a representation of the state. National pride is sort of based on this uh, elevation of peasant music folkloric music the music of the people but in the process of like taking this music of the people it becomes orchestrated and you know like then you have these orchestras with like five violins and cymbalom and all these things and you have directors and conductors and it drives the music into a really interesting place which sort of is to me seems how you get things like this level of virtuosity in folk music right and this level of like training that i i don't even that we don't really have correlations for in this country i think not and actually there's i should i should clarify there's kind of two strains there's the 
we'll call it like the la 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 music. I call it, you know, TV <laughs> Re Uno is, uh, you know, T, you know, Romanian TV one channel one okay. is like, I think it's TV Re Uno, like basically has like, um, you know, I'm putting my, my, my thumbs into my like braces here and sort of like, you know, swaying back and forth and la 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 la, you know, all of that music is like yeah. this sort of peasant music. But at the same time, there's also an elevation of the musica lautariasca, which is like a different strain. Right. And that's uh, Faramitsa Lambru and Dona Dimitra Semenica and these guys who are also, they're like, out, they're like our gypsies, right? Right. And they're, in, they're put in movies and that, and that sort of, it, it also compresses the lautar style into this it's like there, there's like the peasant style and then the lautar style is this more urban professional class music yeah you know but the, and but the, both of those are both sort of elevated and then they're sort of compressed into a particular sort of stylistic patterns it kind of reminds you know? me of at least the lautariaska stuff kind of reminds me of it's like bebop but with a national project behind it <laughs> kind of yeah you know it's right. like you take this style and you add in blistering speed and technique into it but then it's weirdly funded because you know and it's being played by a oppressed ethnic minority but then it's weirdly funded i mean this is like a whole nother yeah. digression which i don't want to get too stuck in because we don't have a million hours no but, but there is a there's definitely but there's a tempo increase through the latter part of the 20th century for sure like and we we did a very interesting interview with with victor gore john had figured out victor gore is one of the early maybe late 50s early 60s he was one of the sort of like lautar guys who was on records and he was famous and he Even was on these shows generation before he the was, electric record kind of people well he, i mean electric record exists in the early 20th century like oh uh, that's the, no i'm i guess but, i'm but thinking of the, like yordache and like yeah uh Tony Yordake? Yeah, yeah. He's also of that generation. So he's a 50s, 60s guy. I think he's earlier. I mean, although I'm going to confess I'm really bad on the dates. The pro part of the, okay, part of it is me, but part of it is that Elect Record never dates their records. Like you never Ooh. know that when they're produced mm -hmm, or what mm -hmm. you, and it's hard to tell from the art, album art because the album art, a lot of it kind of just looks, you know. <laughs> I um, mean, I'm almost going by like, <laughs> This music sounds like that music. Right. You know? So, but Victor Gorai was like, he was very bitter about having been made quite famous hmm. and then basically ignored. At oh, a certain point, he sort of dropped. And by the time we talked to him, he was like in his retirement, he was very bitter about a lot of things that had happened, you know, as he was sort of replaced by other musicians later on, you know, yeah, he I mean, stopped getting work. Also, being a musician, what but like when you're in that, when you're in a funded project by powers that be, right, you right, know, you're not building your own audience. That's right. So you know that's that's a very complicated story that I'm probably almost barely qualified to to talk about. But it is interesting um, that that's and sad to a point that that's kind of what happened. Although the music is beautiful, like don't get me wrong, like sure. La Shalo Chal Negro is like my, one of my favorite albums oh, ever. Yeah. You know. Um, but that's in the 70s, those late 60s and the early 70s. And that doesn't, you know, and from then to me, to my ears, like it kind of just gets faster and a little bit less interesting eventually. Yeah. Because if all you're adding is tempo, then you're not really showing me anything that I'm super interested in right. at a certain point. I mean, I admire the virtuosity, but I'm. But what I find in Jewish music is this, this essential gutsiness you know yeah. this willingness and this d need to grapple with emotional things and thinking and like development and um elaboration you know like i'm all about the elaboration of 
things and ideas and the conversational, like this conversational style, rhetorical style in in the core klezmer repertoire, that's what has grabbed me from the beginning and that's sort of what keeps me there is because, you know, it's just, it's so interesting, you know, and I'm I'm a very simple person at a certain point. I can play A, A, B, B, C, C, rinse, repeat for, you know, a long time. But the Jewish tunes, the klezmer tunes, the good ones, they give you so much to go on because you're every time you're cycling back up to the top of a tune, you're starting on a new story, yeah, a new telling of the same story. And then their stories are interesting. My playing also like I've I really have always been a person who plays for dancing like that's always been kind of one of my primary uh, places I mean I live in the back line I live in the rhythm section mm-hmm. I'm really concerned between I'm really spend a lot of my time between one and 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 ah! like <laughs> where is because like where you put for me like the where you put those beats and how you construct your texture like because I'm so focused on playing for dancing and getting the dance tempos in mm. the right place, mm-hmm. that knowing how to put them together and sort of figuring that out over these many years, you know, playing playing myself, observing Hungarian dances, hung, observing Romanian dances, uh, listening to all these different kinds of music, and then kind of working with Zev to sort of like learning from Zev to understand all the way he approaches, you know, the way he approaches his uh way into Yiddish dance and Ashkenazic dance has sort of strengthened and informed things that I already had intuitions about. Yeah, that's you know often how we find ourselves our partners, right? Right. And 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 fortunately, uh, my boyfriend Charles, uh, who's a bass player, like we discovered very happily, or I discovered very happily that his he is also obsessed with, you know, where on where you put one. Where on it you put? Listen, you in know, the I front, mean, on the back, in the middle, slightly behind, slightly, you know, and how re- close is and to one? You know, like yeah. it's really important. It kind of reminds me of Bootsy Collins <laughs> from Parliament Funkadelic, going like, "It's all about the one," you know. 
And it's true. It's it's. I don't think he was talking about Klezmer when he said that. Although maybe, but maybe should. he was. I know? mean, listen. You know, his old bandmate Fred Wesley plays with Krakauer and Josh Dolgan all the time. So, it's uh, it's it is what it is. You spent a long time in Europe. What when did you move back to the states? We came back in two thousand and two, like in April. So this really was. So this research was sort of the end of your Stay. European yeah. thing. I didn't realize. Okay. Yeah, we were. I was over there for about nine years altogether, uh-huh. and the last two were in Romania. We, yeah, we stretched. Actually, that's really important. We, it, so that this whole period of research is about two years long. The period saying. of research is about two years long, and you know, we went. We we lived over there. We had got. We had the grant, and then we extended the visas. We were able to extend the visas for one more year, and by the end of that second year, of the visa, like I think both of us were ready to be like, okay, we have to get out of here because. It's it's challenging. I mean, it was amazing and phenomenal, but it's sure. also challenging to live. I there. mean, I was only in that part of the world for about a week, and I think that the level of ruralness is something we're Americans don't really understand, right? For the most part, especially. I mean, I'm a city slicker, you know, but like, yeah, I remember walking to a village, and it took like nine hours or something. It was like no way to get there otherwise. I don't right. think there was a road, right? You know, like the one building that we saw was a post office, right? You know, no. so so we were we were pretty much done, and I think maybe we were you know we it was going to be very we had to start a business to keep the visa, and we were running out of money, and it was time to make a change. And so you know, Bob had Bob and Fumi had come to do a couple. They they think they did at least one. I can't maybe maybe they came out and we did two trips together. Um, you know, we took him, we took them up to meet uh, Kovac. Uh, Jorge in in uh, Yod for the first time, like he, you know, and I know he's continued. He continued to do work with him until he passed away. And I know that. And we also there was another brother, or one of his cousins. They're, they're all called Kovac, and they're all that's a whole other story. But like <laughs> all of the all of the professional gypsy musicians in Maramoresh, like they're all Kovaches. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so it's, it's kind of confusing keeping track of Reiner was the other one, and we went oh. to see him Kovac Reiner, and, and you know. So anyway, that's that's. Uh, so, so but it's like two thousand three. And now you come back, and you come back into a world where everything's collapsed into klezmer music. This entire, you know, people are like, oh, you play klezmer music, you're like, oh, it's Moldovan, you know, this stuff. Everything just gets sort of like well, collapsed. Basically, I moved to Rhode Island where nobody knew anything about nothing. Like, you know, like <laughs> I was living in southern Rhode Island, and it was a great place to live. It was a great place to land, you know, and it was great because I worked at a restaurant for a while that was sort of catered to a very elderly clientele, which is the same people that I'd been talking to in Romania. And so they let me just talk at them about all the stuff that we'd done. And I, I needed, I just basically would talk at people for a while, for a couple of years to get over the cultural, culture shock stuff and kind of get it out of my system. But then I started, I did, I got, I started reaching out to people. I found some people in Providence to play with. Dina Ressler very kindly invited me to play with her up in Boston. And I met Jim Gutman eventually. And somehow I ended up playing with wholesale and somewhere around 2005 and somehow I got on Alicia's radar and she invited me to come down and play some stuff. Right. Uh, so that wasn't so much later. It wasn't so much later. And I ended up kind of subbing in her ensembles for a while and kind of got to know people eventually. But at the time, actually I was quite a baby klezmer when it came to playing simchas because in Europe we only played concerts. Yeah, but also you, know? I mean, you were only playing the repertoire you wanted to play, and it was different than yeah. the repertoire that was sort of demanded. That's definitely here. for sure, absolutely. 
Yeah. So, but the other, another big part of the picture here too, the like the last little piece of the, of the Moldova stuff is that, in the process of hoovering up all this material, so we get we go on a field trip and we come back and John would end up going down to the library in Cluj. He would spend his days down there, work, looking at stuff. He was looking up theater things and trying to figure out how all these troops of of, of coupletists and people were like traveling around in Romania. And I would sit at home and I would go through these these books. And I came across a book, and it had a bunch of tunes in it called Husin. I was like, hmm, that's interesting. And I play the tunes, and I was like, oh, that's I know that tune. I know that tune. I know I know that tune. That I know that that's exactly a tune. And it's not just like a two-parter. It's like an actual known klezmer tune. I can't remember which one it is right now, but mm-hmm. it's one that you would know. And I and I'm reading about it. And I'm looking at these repertoire, and I'm like, I don't know what this is, but I think it's above my pay grade. Uh, <laughs> and and I, I wanted somebody else to know about it. I hadn't really found anything else that I thought, oh, this is so interesting or so amazing that I need to like share it. But I, I did know that this, whatever this was, that it was important. And I had met Zav Feldman in 1996. Uh, there was a guy, Peter Finch, used to have this party once a year on this island up on the Danube. And so it was a big barbecue, like he'd roast a pig and people would come and it was at this club and it's on the on the river and it's a big party. And so Zev showed up one year, 1996. And also Wald Mahovich and Steve Greenman and uh, Peter Horo were in town. Josh Horowitz was in town with Budowitz and they were at the party. So they were playing. Bob was there. I was there. I think Geza was there. We hung out and we played. And Zev was there um, with you, did Frijeshi. And, you know, and he was, we were hanging around eating food and drinking beer. And like he danced, you know, and, and then, then that was it. And I didn't, and then he went back to, I don't even know why he was in Hungary at that time. I think he actually mentioned that party when I talked to him as like him sort of being like, oh, right, this stuff's pretty fun. Right, or this is happening, or something is happening, right? And so, so that's '96, and then you know, I didn't know him for nothing, but but it's true that actually in 1999, before we went before we went on the grant, we had been summoned to DC to go to this sort of Fulbright like pre-conference where they told you basically just bring a lot of duct tape. Huh. That was one of the main instructions oh, uh, about oh, like on your trip, not <laughs> yeah. to Washington DC. <laughs> <laughs> it's like why that's weird. Fuck? That's a weird conference. You know, it's like this is geared for people who have never been to Europe before, and so we were like, right, yeah, yeah, right, yeah, whatever, yeah, hungry, yeah. la la la. But we were there. But there's, you know, so, but so, but after that, so we went, we went, we went to a, we went to the Folk Life Center. And we talked to John's old boss there, and we asked, you know, what should we bring for equipment and stuff like that. And he's like, just, you know, we decided to bring tape. Even though there were digital options available, he's like, you can get a tape recorder fixed anywhere. Mm. And you can always find cassette tapes. Mm. And so we did. We recorded everything on cassette tape. And then after that, we went to D.C. Uh, we went up to New York and we saw Hevrisa perform, I think, at Lincoln Center, which was cool. And then I we made appointments and we saw Michael Mishka. Michael Alpert. Michael Alpert. And we met him for coffee somewhere. And and then we went up to Zev's apartment. And and basically what we were asking was like, well, we're going to go off to Romania to do this research. Are there any questions that you would like to have answered? Mm-hmm. You know, is there something, you know, I want to go look at this interface between Moldavian and Jewish music. But, you know you guys have been studying this music for a long time. You know a lot about it. You know, is there something that we should be looking for? Is there something that we can ask about, you know? Um, and they were like, uh, you know, just go 
they didn't unfortunately you know they didn't really have anything specific that they could point us to but it was great to but to meet zev and we i think we sat around in his apartment and he played us the music of the dagestani jews the accordion mountain jewish music the accordion stuff um and then off we went uh but then when i found this husin music i was like i really should get this to zev you know i'd given it to bob uh and i'd think I'd probably given it to Yankel Falk, you know, who we were playing with Nike Capella with. Mm-hmm. But I was like, it should probably go to somebody else. And and it happened to be that I was able to track him down. Once again, he was in Budapest and we met for lunch and I gave him the photocopies of this material and said, you should just, I don't know what this is, but you should have it. And then we went our separate ways. And I think around 2006, we're well back in the States. And I get a call from Zev and he's like, do you want to come play in an ensemble with uh, Alex Fitterstein? Mm-hmm. And I said, yes. Yeah. He's no <laughs> Who's Alex? Well, I didn't know who Alex was, but oh, he was okay. like, you know, but I, and I had never played music with Zev, but he, but for some reason when he was trying to put together, think of the person who would be in this ensemble to play accordion, clarinet, accordion, and cymbal, he thought of me and called me up and asked me to, if I was interested. And of course I was. And so I started a process of them. We went down and I, maybe it was 2007. We'd have to look up the dates. But I started a process of like just driving down a couple of times a month or every other month. And we would go to Zev's apartment. We were rehearsing this music. And in the course of coming down for those rehearsals, you know, it was sort of a four-hour drive right, right, right. from Rhode Island. So like it was, you know, I was committing a day. So I would stay for coffee afterwards and seven. I started, you know, we sort of chit-chat afterwards. And um, and that started off what became the conversations that led to getting eventually invited to go with him to go back to Moldova to do the field work for the you know, the the Moldova work that was funded out of his being in Abu Dhabi. Right, yeah, which he mentioned. And uh, I think he's working on a book about that right now or something, or it's, anyway, whatever. Yeah, the Moldova book is coming. I mean, the the Moldova, those Moldova research, field research trips were at the time when he was really, I think, getting together the Klezmer book. Right, right, right. You know, so it the, the, the research that was done, the work that we did there uh, was not directly, it's indirectly related to the Klezmer book. I mean, it's all related. I mean, obviously it's all related, but you know, that Houston material actually ended up helping him to make a connection. I think with, um, looking into the Moldavian connections, the Bessarabian connections, you know, Vasily Kisalita is another important figure who's going to come up later probably. And he's going to be an important, uh, music, uh, folklore collect, collect, uh, connection to, any kind of a living link that we have with the way that klezmer music penetrated into the lautar consciousness or it penetrated into uh the repertoires of non-jewish musicians in that yeah. area because kisalisa did work in ukraine where he was out this is probably in the i think either the late 70s or the early 80s he's going out and doing fieldwork trips and collecting and then he's very graciously shared some of those recordings with us so that we can, with our repertoire heads, help to sort of place the material that he collected. Right. So that's going to be part of the future oh, stuff cool. that Zev is going to be coming up with. Because the Moldova book is like, it's a whole, it's such a big story that right. it really is deserving of its own treatment, you know? Oh, yeah. And, and I mean, I think about what it means to be, whether it's an American Jew or 
white person involved in these like kind of musics and just uh yeah you just need we have so little sense of what the story is and we have so little sense of how many different facets with this podcast it's for me it's useful i get to talk to you and other people and really just realize like how it's not even about whether we don't know or whatever but how much important it is to not make things bigger than they are and that they're they're already like big enough you know and and then you respect what's happened since then like we're gonna play a concert later right and it's just a big mess of stuff that appeals to me but also that's that's the current picture of what our history is and what does it all mean but actually to be aware of all that stuff you can actually maybe make some answers that can help us move forward also we have about 15 minutes so i just want to say you said you had some things you want to get out well there's there's one thing i wanted to say is that like you know just to, to, to point to a conversation we were having yesterday is that um, having now listened to your album, mm-hmm. Radiant Others, like what I hear in there is your treatment of uh, an unconventional set of instruments. You know, mm-hmm. you have guitars and keyboards and trombone. But when I listen to that album, I hear things that make me happy because the ones and the ends are all in the right place. Yeah, I mean, you know, and so it's informed by a deep understanding of the textures that make uh, traditional uh, tunes work in, you know, within their context. But you're taking it into a new place. I mean, if you what I've always said for myself, what I'm interested in is trying to the reason why I play traditional klezmer music is because I'm trying to not only do I like it on its own right. But if if I'm trying to gain information that I can use for like creative music or my own thing, I want the most the juiciest stuff right. and the stuff that's least like other stuff. Right. You know, the most the most unique or whatever. And well, so and so with Bivolisa, so like the contemporary, like that my 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 ensemble, which I finally you know I, after having played in lots of different bands, been part of lots of different ensembles, and now been a sub with lots of different groups for many years. You know, I was very fortunate to find in moving to New Haven, into uh, Hamden, that I have a group of musicians like literally in my neighborhood who uh, are enormously fun to play with and yeah. have. Um, kind of tickled uh, a bone in me about how to do things with the music that that are fun and creative and new. It's not just a reproduction. I mean, I'm a I am absolutely into. I'm a, I, I fall into the recreationist camp. Mm-hmm. Like I like playing things the way that they were on recordings. I like knowing how to play things like they were on the old recordings. But I've also, with this ensemble, learned and pushed myself in to be out of the box in terms of like, let's do new stuff, let's do different stuff, let's mm-hmm. deconstruct things. So we have this approach of being like this experimental, we're taking old European repertoire. For the most part, it's European repertoire, mostly because that's what I find to be most interesting for this project. But European repertoire, and we're like deconstructing it, taking it as a improvisational chamber music approach. So we have two fiddles, viola, and accordion. So it's like a chamber kind of ensemble. But, you know, instead of having notes on a page that tell you what to do, we're taking tunes and saying like, well, let's do things with them. My only thing that I sort of really try to hold on to is that sense of making sure that the dance rhythms are understood 
and established at some point, even if you decide to go away from them, mm-hmm. you know. But for me, because that's always been the part of what makes the makes it klezmer. Somehow, for me, has to do with preserving a sense of understanding of what it is that makes it Jewish, what it is that the aesthetic, some part of the aesthetic remains. Now, for me personally, probably just because of who I am, that has a lot to do with the underlying rhythmic structure, Mm -hmm. because that's kind of where my own interest is, rather than purely melodic, although, I mean, the melodies too, you know, but you can diverge from the melodies. But for me, like, the, the sense of Yiddishkeit somehow lives in that rhythmic structure somewhere, yeah. too. And it doesn't mean that you always have to be slavish to it. You don't have to always do it, but you should probably know where it is. Because if you don't know where it is, then you're just sort of flailing around. Yeah. And it's sort of improvisation for improvisation's sake. And if you want to do that, it's like, well, there's jazz. So there's other kinds of, you know... Like why yeah. pick these? Why this pick this? This is not a soloistic music, you know. It's not. Right. It's not. It's not an extemporizing music. You don't really. Yeah. Like, you know, it's right. it's a it's a much more kind of subtler thing. I I always say like klezmer is kind of fragile, you know, as in like if you mess with the rhythm, especially with the rhythmic stuff you're talking about. If you mess with that, it it it's not very it can't really withstand a lot of changes without without going into a very different place. Right. Well, and so when I go to a, when I have, like I have my, we all have our own book. Like I have my book that I go, you know, and I have four copies of it and I bring it to Simcha's, you know, if we're going to sit down, mm-hmm. we're going to play for, you know, cocktail music or whatever. And I, my book is huge. Right. Because I want to be able to just, um, you know, when, when I have the luxury to do it, be able to flip back and forth and play the tune that's in the right tempo, in the right mood for whatever it is that we're feeling out of that audience at that particular moment. It's what is the what is the ensemble doing? What are we sounding like that we like to play that in whatever configuration we happen to be that day? What is the audience doing? What do they need? What do they want? And that that skill, like you, it's hard to do that if you only have twenty tunes to choose from. Oh, so sure. you know, you have this big book because I don't want to make a tune faster just because I want a faster tune. If, it, if the tune is at, you know, 120, I'm not going to push it to 130. I'd rather choose a tune that is at 130. You know mm-hmm, what I mean? Mm-hmm. Rather than slowing something down, like just pick a tune that's in that tempo. You know, and I'm, I'm hoping that the work that I'm a part of, I'm, I'm wanting to do work in the future going forward in the next five years that will help to make accessible to general audiences um, sets of tunes that are more clearly identified as to what is their genre what mm-hmm. actual like it's called a serba but actually it's a frelix you know right. it's called a bulgar but actually it's a serba you know so that people who are coming to into the music and wanting to g- become invested you know can have a good foot to start on in terms of like building up their own dance sets building up their own repertoires yeah we that's really kind of that. informed by this kind of stuff so like that, that is like very deeply what i'm i'm hoping to work on in the next five years well, that's so interesting there i said it Made it all this way without saying that. <laughs> What's great about that is that we live in a time where the klezmer scene, for whatever reason, seems to have there's no there's not really a sense of like a core set of tunes. Like if you start learning jazz, you're going to learn there's sort of like an order you're going to learn things in for the most part. And like you've probably I'm assuming with Irish music or old time music, there's probably like you know entry level tunes, whether the difficulty or like you know, walk-in-the-door tunes. And Klezmer, I think there used to be, you know, if you you would say Kate, Klezmer Conservatory Band Repertoire, complete Klezmer 
American Klezmer books. Like, that's what you said the Budapest Klezmer band was playing out of. Because that was the stuff that was the most ubiquitous. And, like, Yiddish Renaissance, I think, just, like, blew up, you know, the album. And so people were playing, you know, these tunes with those arrangements often. Right. But then nowadays, if you had a vision for how to sort of, you know, organize a bunch of tunes that would bring people along like that, I think it's super necessary. Yeah, I mean, and I'd like to also, I mean, because we know we know that in the American, 20th century American klezmer experience, a lot of the genres dropped out. Yeah. And it's it becomes very clarinet-centric. It's all about the Bulgars. And, you know, and then there's even a collapsing of the dis- distinction between Bulgar and Freilux. Oh, yeah, I mean, if you... you know. You know, playing with Susan and Elaine, we play Freilofs and we don't play any Freilofs. Right. And it's weird also to tell her, oh, that's the Bulgar. Right. She's like, no. It's a Freilofs. That's a Freilofs. And it's like, <laughs> what are we going to say, you know? But having, so so in my sort of, like, I'd like to sort of help to kind of reintroduce, so because Zev's because book now has also like helped us to really understand these sort of genre distinctions between, you know, Radel, Freilofs, and it gives us some distinguishing characteristics. So I think I'd like to work with Zev to help kind of also come up with like a set of things that have like, here's some dobre dens, here are some jokes, here's some very Jewish joke, you know, slow horror, we call them, mm-hmm. you know, Hoffman's horror is a classic example, yeah. right, here yeah, from yeah. Philly. But then have like the Moldavian jokes also, you know, have some of them that are much more clearly like the Hora Fetelor is like like classic Romanian joke. And the approach to them is should be a little bit different, actually. Right. And just say, like, here's three of these or four of these, and here's a couple of these, and here's some things about them that you can just inform your playing. Here's a bunch of Chosetl, here's some from Belf, here's some other ones, here's some some from Terrace, and here's some Freilux, here's a Radle or two. You know, that just, you know, without getting too heavy-handed with the didacticness of it, at least gives you some signposts right, but to then, hang your hat on. And, and then you, know? you really, in a way, you have to, you have to take people through the, uh, or I would be interested, and then you sort of have to present them, okay, this is a clear understanding of what went, of what people showed up in America with. And then in America, they had to drop most of it. And some of it became something else. Right. So like you get like on the, you get sort of the, the one end point is like Sammy Musiker. Right. You know, that's like an end point of things. And then you, you know, one of the things I decided when I started this podcast was I, w- I decided that I was going to call, I was going to accept as Klezmer anything anybody called Klezmer. You know, within that, we could pull it apart and say, you know, like, well, this is and, and like, you know, your ability to do that, Zev's ability to do that, because of the work that you've done is so rare and so important. Because again, the more you're able to zoom in and see what actually was, you start, you start, you make fewer mistakes about like, you know, we were talking earlier, you make fewer mistakes about the narrative that you live with. Right. You know, you have more, you have a more real version of what this music is, what it means, you know, but then you also have to accept the present too, because if someone starts playing Klezmer now, not only, I mean, it de- again, it depends on what their goal is. Like, I've had plenty of professional musicians come up to me and say, I want to learn about this music. What do I need to do? And I'm like, come to Klez Camp once, see if you can get some gigs. But you don't need this information to play gigs. You know, Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Although, although I will tell you that knowing... I mean, to play with us. To play know. with us, but also, like, I think that there's, I mean, you know, this is, okay, this was a great line. This is like... 
professional music of the oral tradition. Mm -hmm. This is like this, you know, old Soviet musicological term. But like, yes, you can go in, you can buy the complete klezmer and you can go play a dance set at a wedding. I'm not sure that if you don't know anything else other than what you have in that book, that you'll actually be able to get people to dance in the way that you imagine that they might, that we would be able to do it. But that's because we have this oral tradition about how to structure and how to play for dancing. You well, know? yeah, but then it's on us to sort of, and I, I think we do this when we play, is that prove that there's a difference Absolutely. And then prove why you should go in our direction. Like, oh, sure. You oh, know, sure. Yeah, it, yeah, it's yeah. It's like we're still in the position, and I think we're just moving beyond the position of, like, it's all klezmer, you know? Right. And there are those of us who know a little more, you know, like, well, Yiddish song and klezmer. And read, I mean, reading Zev's book is really important because you realize things like Yiddish theater and klezmer aren't, were kind of mutually exclusive for a long time, according to him. Right. And... That's really useful, and that's something that got collapsed in the revival, let alone even before the revival right. in America. And so, but then on the other hand, you get people like us who can kind of waltz out and do it all, maybe. I mean, that's kind of a big, bold statement. But at the same time is we have a sense of how to, like, switch hats right. within this thing that for most people, including me a lot of the times, don't see the distinctions. Right. So the, the easier it is to be able to make distinctions and say, try things this way, try things that way, that's a slightly different world. Try things over here, that's a slightly different world. And that's something that sounds like you're in a really good position to be able to give us. Right. Well, and like, you know, you look at Irish music, well, or like old time, like there's the old time fiddlers book, you mm -hmm. know, like you can go buy a book that's got like a hundred tunes, yeah. you know, and that's, it is, it's like, those are like the, you know, those are, that's your entry level. If you can play tunes out of that book, like, you know, Arkansas Traveler and Flop Beard Mule, yep. you know, like they're all in there and that will, and old Joe Clark will get you into, will you get you into the jam, you know? And then you can go from there, you know, with Irish music. And the other thing is that we don't have, like, in Irish music, there's jigs, slip jigs, um, slides, uh, and reels, and hornpipes. There's maybe, you know, there's more genres, but, like, those, you can do a lot with jigs and reels, mm -hmm. right? Those are huge, enormous genres. And, you know, you can get into the jam playing jigs and reels, and then you can nerd out about, like, what county things are from, and, you know, that's your deeper level. With with klezmer music, we have lots of genres, actually. And and, and those genres have been collapsed by this American experience, for sure. And we're trying to re-expand them by, like, accessing Berogovsky and looking to the European repertoire and then digging through our American repertoire to find those genre tunes, you mm -hmm. know? But there's a lot of genres, so it can be, it is on its face very perplexing what it is you're playing. Well, is it, you know, what is it, what's a Dobriden and how is it different from a, from a, a uh, Dobra Nash, you know, or, you know, or even there, Horror Jacques. You know, Horror Jacques, that's, that's, that's big differences. I mean, those <laughs> are big differences. And I, I mean, there's a lot of things that happen. I mean, you know, also something I learned from Zev's book is that there was basically no klezmer folk tradition. It was a professional music played Absolutely. by professional, I would say cosmopolitan-ish musicians for the most part. You know, and even you can listen to some of these recordings that you play and they don't sound cosmopolitan to our ear. But they're professional. But they're professional, and, and they were in that way. Absolutely. And so there are barriers that are created for access. So again, it's like what you said earlier. We're in a situation of trying to not only recreate stuff, and this is like something I try to always remind people of, we're not just bringing stuff back. We're doing a lot of creation, even if it sounds old, 
ways of doing it, ways of thinking about it that never existed before. Right. I mean, I that's it's it's it's, it's important that you bring that up because it was has been on my mind too that you know, I I was very fortunate by being in this very isolated place of living in Budapest in the 90s. We were very fortunate because Brave Old World came through town. The Klezmatics came through town. And I got to hang out with those musicians backstage and in town when they were visiting in a way that if I stayed in Seattle or Portland, I never would have met any of them. You know, I mean, Kurt Bjorling gave me a lesson in, in how to play kreks in the back of the Marzibaniter Moldvaitanshaus one night. You know, and that lesson stayed, in that one lesson stayed with me. You know, like that gave me an entree. You know, Bob had a lot to teach me, but he did that, that specific technique, he couldn't. And then there's Kurt, happened to be there and he we went to the back and spent 20 minutes doing it which was phenomenal but um i had this because i was getting involved with old time music at the time i got my first banjo when i was in budapest bob got called me up when he's like hey there's an ad in the newspaper it's like have banjo want accordion He's like, you should go get that banjo. And he's like, you have an accordion lying around somewhere you don't want. I was like, well, yeah, I do. And so I went and I, <laughs> I got this like traded a shitty Eastern European, like uh, East German Weltmeister accordion for a kind of crappy Weltmeister banjo. And he taught me how to play Clawhammer, you know, in my kitchen one day at Tom, you know, I was living with Tom Popper at the time and he took the back off of it and he's like, bang, bang, bang. And I'm just like, that's it. And he's like, yep, that's it. And bang, bang, bang. I was like, okay, old time music. Awesome. <laughs> And then I scored some cassette tapes and like this book from Mel Bay, like Teach Yourself Clawhammer Banjo. But I thought, oh, this klezmer world back in the United States, there's a jamming culture there that I'm just not part of. And the revival must have been this amazing thing with jams and people getting together and stuff like this. And then come to find out 20 years later, Zev was like, no. Nope. Didn't happen. It was always a project-based culture in the revival, as far as I could see, or as far as he reported to me. And so, if we are, but but that that to me, it doesn't mean that I don't I, that we can self-consciously create a jamming culture. Like, yeah, the jamming culture in old-time music has developed and evolved. Like, there wasn't a jam culture like we see today. In old time music in the twenties. Oh, okay, that's good to know. I mean, I think that there was a fest. There was always a competitive element to old time fiddle playing. Right. You know, there would be like the county fair, and there'd be a prize for the top fiddle player. And right. so people would travel. They go and they, you know, they, you know, you get to know who was going to show up at the festivals. I think it seems like that was always there's a long time a component of it. But something like, and you know, Galax, the Fiddler's Convention there started in 1935, and it's huge now. And people come. It's still a competition, but people come and they hang out and jam. Clifftop in West Virginia, I mean, John went to that when it first started back. It must have been in the early, late 80s or early 90s, you know, very small. And it's grown, you know, but that's in the 80s and 90s. It's not the 70s. It's not the 60s yeah, when that started. Good point. And so this, you know, that the way that we approach old time music now is a living and changing thing. And it wasn't, it isn't today what it was then and what it was in the 80s and 90s is also very different from what would have happened in the sort of anthropological past, the ethnographic past, you know. So I think that it's possible to create some kind of a jamming culture with klezmer music if that's something that we want to do. If we decide that that's something that we want, we, there's ways to do it, yeah. you know? And maybe that would be a way that we can help bring people in so that, and because in, in old time culture, like if I always, you know, it's like, it's like being on the bandstand. You always want to be the worst person on the stage. 
you know, the worst player on the stage because that means that you're playing with people who are much better than you. And there's jam sessions. Like if I get to go sit in a jam session at Clifftop with so-and-so or so-and-so, then I get to go sit and learn from them in this really informal and cool session uh, setting, you know? And that's a way that we can transmit information in a contemporary setting that isn't as formalized as like an instructional place right which is where you have to pay for, for you know you have to go to a camp and you pay for it and of course that's a great model and it happens in old-time culture too you know you can go to ashokan you can go to um right various weeks old-time week you know but a lot of information is also shared at jam sessions that happen all around you know so you know it's a model it's definitely a model that we can look to i think that the big step for that sounds like the work that you're looking forward to doing which is making sure that there is a widely available set of clear, simply bounded in music that people can try to work on sort of one step at a time. Right, and that, that can be like a reference. And you know, and this is not to dog the complete klezmer or no, any of the collections, but just to say stuff. that like you know, the complete klezmer, I mean seminal. I mean that it came out, it was like I one of the first pieces of actual I mean like yeah. sheet music that I acquired was like Turk in America and it was from or Turk Shialovoyova that that Yuta was playing and you know it's from that book. Somebody's, you know, illegally photocopied no uh you know that thing Whatever. which we all do right it's we all, all do it now. right but um in any case like but that now that book is is old and, and what i realized at a certain point is like it's all clarinet repertoire which is great but it we was, have more you know you know again it's it's like it was the best of its moment right and now things are different so there's nothing it doesn't take anything away from it that it, things at times have changed and the desires and the needs of a scene and of the like, you know, of learning things have just changed. Right, and I would say too that 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 introductory essay by Pete Sokolow about how to accompany mm-hmm. is still one of the best little pieces of writing about how to accompany classical oh, awesome. music. I re- I mean, it stands up uh, phenomenally. You know, it's worth it's really worth revisiting, even yeah. if you're an experienced player, and be like, oh yeah, yeah, he's really got that right. Yeah. So, but yeah, so so that's you know, like we I think that, and we can make it a collective project. I mean, maybe there's a way that we can make this sort of a collective project where we help to you know, because people have all kinds of tunes. You know. Yeah. I'd love to also make like I mean, this is a, maybe a super pipe dream, but like this like the big klezmer real book. Why not? You know. Why not? We can do it digital. Yeah. Well, it's gonna have to be. It's digital. like super. Yeah. Yeah. Because like, who wants to print out like you know a thousand pages? If only know? there was a equivalent of the Fulbright inside America. Oh yeah. Well. For that. Maybe, maybe who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Well, we should probably get to our gig. That's right. We should probably start, you know, thinking about playing the music. Thank you, Christina. Thank you, Dan. It's been great. This is awesome. Well, that's my conversation with Christina Crowder. She's really led quite an amazing life, right? I mean, I did not know a lot of the story of her story that she told me before this conversation, and... It's amazing. I'm really blown away, even still. So I'm pretty excited that we get to know each other and get to play together pretty regularly. And uh, actually, the next time I'll be playing with her, I think, is on December 7th at the Philadelphia Museum of Art for their Hanukkah celebration. So 
That's a uh, show that's free with museum admission Friday, December 7th in Philadelphia at the Philadelphia Museum of Art, if you happen to be there. And again, uh, you know, Christina is at Bivolitza, which is B-I-V-O-L-I-T-A dot com. So that's it for me. There'll be another episode up in two weeks. And as always, good Shabbos.